Welcome to NAFI's More Right Rudder podcast. I'm Beth Stanton, Director of Publications and Editor for NAFI. This is The Writers Behind the Stories, a bi-monthly series where we get to meet some of the authors who write the articles in NAFI's Mentor magazine. Mentor is a magazine by flight instructors for flight instructors and features an array of topics dedicated to improving the skills of aviation instructors. Today on the show, we have Patrick Howell. Patrick is a graduate of the Citadel Military College with a bachelor's degree in English and Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University with a master's degree in aeronautics. He is a CFI, CFII, MEI, and a Cirrus standardized instructor pilot. He is also an FAA safety team representative, volunteer for Pilot and Pause, and is an associate NAFI master flight instructor. Patrick is a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force with a 15-year active duty career. He served for seven years as an instructor in Czech Airmen in the B-52 bomber. He is wrapping up his time on active duty and is leaping into the civilian sector. Patrick lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and is a charter pilot at Silverhawk Aviation and instructor at Rev Aviation. Patrick has written several feature articles for Mentor Magazine and is the author of On Your Wing, the Meet and Nafi member column that debuted in the July-August 2023 issue of Mentor. He describes himself as a high-energy flight instructor invested in growing smart, safe, and proficient pilots. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, my first question to you is, how are you a friggin' lieutenant colonel like is that normal for somebody like I always think of colonels as older guys and gals so are you just like a freakishly talented person that you like went up the rank so fast no it, it happened on time um you know about the about the window to make lieutenant colonels about the 15 year mark um but I I remember being a, a brand new lieutenant and seeing you know, I, I, you promote from major to lieutenant colonel. And I remember seeing majors that I walked into my squadron and thought, holy crap, those guys are ancient. And now I'm probably, you know, four or five years past that. So uh, it, it snuck up on me real fast. Um, I think not so much from any particular talents is the fact that uh, you know, I, I stuck around. So You're so modest. So it was just the passage of time. Yeah. Well, you know, being, being marginally good at your job helps, but uh you know, um, you know, you, you keep your nose clean and you do the things you're supposed to do and you um, check the boxes and do the jobs and have the experience. And, you know, sometimes it works out for you. So, well, I'm very impressed with this. I'm also one of the other things I want to talk about is English major aeronautical. <laughs> yeah. anyway, so um, I met you in person last year. Oshkosh, so 2022 Oshkosh. Uh, mm -hmm. At that point, you had already written one article for Mentor Magazine, which we're going to talk about. But you came up to me and said, you know, I have a degree in English and I'm also like in, in the beach, you know, 52 bomber. And I'm like, hang on a second. How does that all jive? So so tell us a little bit about like how you transitioned from why, like, why did you start with English? And then you went on to get your master's degree in aeronautics. Yeah. So um the the English major was kind of a uh, at the time it was kind of a, a sad story. Um, 
So I've, I'm sure like a lot of people that probably listen to the podcast and read mentor. Um, I've wanted to fly since I was, I can't remember. Um, you know, my, my first thoughts as a kid were I want to fly. So, um, knowing nothing about general aviation or having no one in my family that was into general aviation, I thought, well, I'll join the air force and fly. Um, so that was my, you know, my goal uh, that I was working toward since again, you know, I was five years old and my, my kindergarten teacher goes, Patrick, what do you be when you grow up? I'm like, I want to fly for the air force. Um, so, you know, the air force, a lot of time prioritizes technical degrees. Um, so, um, I was in high school and I wanted to, you know, go to college. So I applied for the scholarship um, for an ROTC scholarship. And you generally have a better chance of getting the scholarship if you apply as a technical major. Uh, they don't just give you a scholarship and say, pick your major. They say, are you going to be tech or non-tech? So I picked physics because I took physics in high school and I liked it. We we're doing all kinds of, you know, cool experiments like, hey, hit your teacher with an egg from the top of the football stadium. And I'm like, this is cool. I want to be, you know, be in physics. So I applied to be a physics major, um, got accepted and got accepted to the Citadel and showed up and uh, forgot one important thing that um, math and I do not agree. So um, my first semester was passable. My second semester, my freshman year was uh, deplorable GPA wise. And the Air Force said, remember that scholarship we gave you? Sorry. Um, so that was, that was a bit of a, like, a wake-up call, um, but it ended up being a blessing in disguise because um, I took a you know English comp as every other you know undergrad does the freshman year, and I took an English class, and I was like, yeah, I, I kind of like this. Um, so, you know, once the the constraint of having to be a technical major was removed by you know, losing the scholarship, um, it ended up being kind of a blessing in disguise because I got into a major which I actually really liked. And I knew I was going to get commissioned. I knew I was going to go in the Air Force. So at that point, the major didn't really matter. It was just getting the degree. So I've always been a reader. Um, you know, I've been an avid reader since you can probably see the bookcase behind me um, since, you know, I was in, in middle school. And, you know, what's what's a better degree for a reader than English? Read books and write papers about it. So, so that's how that happened. Um, and then um, the B-52 happened because... I had, you know, I, I was getting a commission and they said, hey, who wants to fly? And I said, duh. Um, so, you know, they go, hey, you know, put in for a pilot navigator, uh, whatever. So I got picked up for navigator training um, and went off to San Antonio, Texas, and then um, did well enough in my navigator training where I more or less had my choice um, of what I was going to fly. And as I was thinking about what I was going to say for the interview earlier, um, I was in, I was a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, I was already going to serve and now I'm really going to serve, right? I'm, you know, that's just probably every red-blooded American, you know, teenager's like, I'm in. Um, so, you know, I wanted to be, there was a, you know, there was a war on and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, young, dumb, and like full of gung-ho. So, it's a navigator training and, you know, the biggest, baddest airplane you can fly is the B-52. So, so that's what got me there. So that's how I became an English major flying a, you know, eight engine, 488,000 pound strategic bomber. Well, I just had to ask you, and thank you for explaining it so beautifully, because it is kind of a head scratcher, you know, um, and, you know, I 
as many people know, was an English major. And Mm -hmm. I majored in English because it involved the least amount of math. And then I became a pilot. And in the course of becoming a pilot, I realized, oh, becoming a pilot is all the stuff I didn't think I could do, you know. Um, And then it's like, oh, well, I actually can do this and I'm good at it. And um, so I guess life can really bring us into some really improbable places. And I'm sorry, but the B-52 is quite the badass aircraft. And I'm sorry, like everybody, like, I think that alone is like, just, I mean, I know you're married, but that would be a really good way to pick up chicks, you know, like (laughs) a B-52. Because I mean, it's such an iconic, cool airplane. So, okay, on that, tell us, um, now you wrote about in in your second article, why I teach flying, you spoke uh, about one of your experiences you had instructing someone in the B-52 and that was in the March, April, 2023 issue of Mentor Magazine. So people can go read that article, but can you tell us what is, what is one of your favorite thing? What was one of your favorite things instructing in the B-52? Cause you know, listen, come on, this is not a Cessna. Yeah. Um, so the, the way the, just like any other professional aviation organization or works, right, there's, there's upgrade pathways. Um, so in the B-52, you start out traditionally as a navigator. So you're, you're like the, the co-pilot, quote unquote, right? Um, as far as you're in the, you know, just like upstairs, there's, you know, right seat, left seat dichotomy. Downstairs is a right seat, left seat dichotomy. Um, so the navigator traditionally sits in the right seat downstairs, and then you stick around about a year and a half, um, you upgrade what we traditionally call the radar navigator, which uh, is basically the bombardier position. Um, sometimes I date myself with this reference, but I tell people if you've seen, um, you know, Doctor Strange Love and James Earl Jones in that movie, I'm James Earl Jones. Um, so you know how how cool is that, right? Like I'm I'm basically Darth Vader. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, anyway, so you know, you do that, and then you upgrade to instructor. Um, but usually, you're in an operational unit, so you're just you're instructing people that are already qualified. Um, but you may be doing things like recurrent training or upgrade training. Um, so then we lovingly call it the schoolhouse. So it's the what's really known as the formal training unit. So it's where everyone comes to get their initial B fifty two training. So you know, I said you know, there's kind of a few different paths you can go down in your career, and I said I want to go be a schoolhouse instructor. Because I thought that was just about cool. So um, to kind of get back to the question, that was kind of the neatest thing um, as an instructor was taking these newly winged um, aviators straight out of their navigator training or even because we always say you're, you're not just an instructor navigator or an instructor pilot, you're a B-52 instructor. So it's not just, I know my own job. I know about the weapon system or the plane. And I know enough about the other crew positions to help inform them from my crew position how to do their job better. So you're taking these, you know, young 22, 24-year-old Americans that are, you know, brand new, freshly winged Air Force aviators. But you're teaching them about this incredibly complex um, weapon system. And the B-52 is, it's a 50s era design, right? So it's not... Human factors wasn't a thing. It's not ergonomic. Um, you know, it's it's insanely hot in the summer, and it's it's not that warm in the winter. Um, it's noisy. It's shaky. Um, you know, the pressurization is 1950, so it's 
it can be kind of fatiguing to fly the thing. Um, but you know, it's, it's really rewarding to take these people. And in the course of a seven or eight month course, they can't hardly turn the thing on to, they can be a functioning part of the community and employ. And we call it, you know, we call it fly, fight and defend the jet. So, so that, that was cool. Um, and then, you know, you kind of develop a bond because it's, it's a family really. It is um, the, we, we call it the buff, big, ugly, fat fellow. Um, but uh, you know, you're, you're not only teaching these people how to operate the system, you bring them into your, into your buff family. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the youngins I train, um, I ended up deploying with later. So I got to see them basically from, you know, the word go in the beef to two all the way to taking this plane to an actual deployment um, and using the plane like it was designed to do. So, and I'm, you know, that was, that was Josh that I wrote the article about and a lot of others that were just like him. Um, and that was incredibly fulfilling to take, you know, my, I, I call them my kids, even though they're probably, you know, four years younger, you know, um, take my FU kids and they're from, you know, in the door day one, all the way to um, real world operations. So. Well, that just sounds like you said in your article that you wrote, such a rewarding job to pass along that knowledge. And actually in the September, October issue of Mentor Magazine, there's a theme in that article. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote an editor's piece called Passing the Generational Torch. And it's about as flight instructors, um, we are passing our knowledge onto the next generation, which, you know, I said, flight instructors create the next generation of pilots, which sounds like an idiotically obvious thing, but um, it's, it's not just teaching skills. It's, it's a leg you're passing forward a, a legacy that stretches back, you know, more than a hundred years. So it's uh it's must be quite uh, an honor to, to be able to do this. And it must just be like, wow, this is my job. I get to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, and again, you know, you talk about an airplane that was, you know, all our jets um, were manufactured in 1960 or 61. So, you know, I always get the trivia question wrong. You know, the, the Wright brothers first flight was 1901. Um, so you're talking about an airplane that spanned, you know, literally, half the history of man flight so, so that's pretty cool you walk up to the thing and sometimes you're kind of like i get to go fly this thing today so. i look at the first time i saw one i'm like how does it fly like how <laughs> how does the behemoth fly so i just think if that's such a cool part of your story patrick because there's there's not a lot of flight instructors that that have had that experience like you said you got to pick and choose and that was cool that you got to choose that um i wanted to talk about the couple of things one was what how, well so let me ask you a question how long have you been a NAFI member Patrick uh since the day I passed my CFI check right which was uh August 12th 2017 excellent so I, I literally I remember the the DPE asked me the question about how you're going to make sure you're doing your professional level ones to CFI and my answer literally was well I'm gonna go home and assuming this check right goes well I'm gonna join NAFI so and what did you think NAFI could offer you uh, I think exactly what I'm getting, um, you know, professional development, growth, um, new ways to think about things, you know, I learning from the experience of others. Um, 
you know, I always say that you're never going to live long enough to learn, you know, everything you need to know uh, by yourself. So learn from others. So, um, and I think that's why things like this and mentor and, you know, the, all the online content are great because you're getting all this experience. Well, this was the perfect segue. I swear we didn't set this up ahead of time, you guys, but <laughs> perfect segue. So Patrick's first article that he wrote for Mentor Magazine, which, as I said, appeared in the January, February 2022 issue. Uh, Patrick tells a story about how he got a little sideways in a flight because he got a little dehydrated heat stroke situation. And uh, I thought to myself, I love these types of stories. They're almost like a, I did this. Don't you do this story. It's, it's almost like a confessional story. And it's, it's um these types of stories I love because they're vulnerable. You, you put yourself out there on record saying I did this and it probably wasn't the best idea. This is what led up to me making these decisions. And I won't do that in the future. And maybe you've done this and, and you shouldn't too. So I really love these types of story, Patrick. So tell us a little bit about the situation and then why did you decide to actually write about this? Cause this was your first article for mentor, I believe. Um, so I think something I've, I've brought from being an air force instructor um, is we have these things. Um, every flight, that we fly in the BFTT, we, we write this thing called a debrief focal point. Um, and it usually starts with something like, why did this happen? Um, you know, why, why did this go this way? Or, you know, why did this not go according to plan? Um, and usually there's contributing factors. So we'll say, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. Um, and then usually there is a root cause and we'll say, you know, and the root cause of this going sideways was this. And there's always an instructional fix. So we've got um, contributing factors, the root cause, instructional fix. And I guess in a way, um, I kind of framed that article almost like I'd write a DFP. You know, I said, well, hey, um, you know, this could have gone, you know, really bad. Um, it ended up not. But, you know, I thought the lesson was important to put out there. Um, and you know, the other thing with the Air Force debrief is, um, you know, it's, it's always crucial to set your ego aside, um, to take your, to take your own pride out of the equation and go, Hey, look, like this is objectively what happened and what I did wrong and what, could, what I could have done to fix it. So when I wrote that article, um, there was a, an aspect of, Oh man, I, I really could have porked this up. Um, but it was kind of like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to set my ego aside. I'm going to write this article. Um, and go from there so other people can learn because I I see I can see that happening with a lot of people and I, I would almost um bet that's probably happening more than we think um but maybe not being acknowledged so you want to just explain in a just very brief so people are like what happened so just yeah yeah um, so I'm in I'm in Minot North Dakota right so North Dakota is not usually known to be a very hot and you know human place um that was my second lesson of the day. So, you know, I, it's not like I've done like five, six lessons in a row. Second lesson, um, it was 80 degrees. I jumped out of a, a warrior right into a 150. Um, you know, maybe I think toss back the Coke and the Snickers and hop right back in. Um, and we're on the downwind for, I think, like our third pattern. And all of a sudden I'm like, hey, something ain't right. Um, I'm not 
I'm not up to snuff. Like this isn't working. Um, just feeling, you know, substandard. And I look at my student and I go, Hey, we need to put this thing down. Um, like we're done. Luckily we're already in the, in the pattern, already in the downwind. And he was, I can't remember, he was either, um, like right pre-solo or, you know, I think maybe even post-solo and working on, you know, short and soft landings. Um, but you know, I remember rolling down the taxiway and I'm like, I'm on the verge of like opening the window and barfing here just from feeling so poorly. And we get inside and I couldn't hardly concentrate on filling out the logbook. And I basically said, good job today. Here you go. See you next time. Um, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And I'm, I kind of go into that same kind of, you know, critical self-assessment mode. I'm like, well, I had a cup of coffee this morning and I think I had a Coke after the flight. Um, didn't really drink anything, um, jump right from one flight to another and kind of set myself up to get dehydrated and have, you know, heat exhaustion. So. Well, I'm so glad that, I mean, like I said, when, when I think there's an element of, especially with pilots, you know, they want to appear like invincible and I know what I'm doing and I'm super, I'm super pilot. And I, I really commend you and people and other people who are like, Hey, this is what I did. And, you know, I could have done something differently because to your point, you are not the only person who has done this or is doing it as we're talking right now. So I think shining a light on these situations is so important. Um, And I love the fact that it was your military process that sort of made you think this through and, and want you to write this article. So another good segue, Patrick, thank you for like handing these to me. I'm interested in now, now you're, you're, you've, you're a flight instructor, you're, you're segueing from the military to the civilian sector. Do you notice any differences? Because I mean, a lot of our NAFI members, I mean, most are flight instructors, but I would imagine most of them aren't military flight instructors. So tell me a little bit about, do you see a difference in the type of training either in the instructors received to become instructors and also how the how you as a military instructor teach your students um you know i think as far as how i teach um we always said that any air force training is like trying to teach somebody to hit a hole in one in golf and you get 10 swings and some people can do it in eight some people if you gave them 13, maybe we'll do it in 13. But, you know, the way um, Air Force and really all military flight training works is you didn't get it in 10, sorry. Um, you know, you're out, next person. So um, that was something that I kind of realized pretty early on was, you know, not, there's not always one, you know, it doesn't have to be one way. Um, it can, you know, you can you can train somebody different ways. Um, different takes. Um, some people learn on their own pace and that's okay. Um, you know, the other thing I think, um, kind of maybe two sides of the same coin, um, you know, in, in the air force, every flight is like, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. Um, so I think making the realization that not every flight has to go, um, is there's value to that. Right. Um, but I think on the other thing, we have this kind of we have this kind of sacred term and it's not an Air Force thing. It's really all, you know, 
American aviation flying, and we call it knock it off. So if something bad happens or we're just we're uncomfortable, um, if you say the phrase, hey, knock it off, that's like a, a, a trigger, right? And it's everybody goes, right? And it's like everything stops right now. Um, you know, there's no more discussion. It's, hey, like, it's, it's almost like if somebody says, go around in the airplane, right? If we say, knock it off, like, we're done. So I think um, having the realization that, you know, like sometimes it's okay to call knock it off, you know, um, like we don't have to log this, you know, this flight. We don't have to go flying. Um, it's okay. You know, like I'm, I'm not constrained by these parameters. I have to get, you know, the, the 10 swings. It's like, you know what? We're going to come back another day. You know, we need to do some ground anyway. We got to talk about weight and balance of airspace and that's fine. Um, you know, I, I do think one of the valuable things is, um, having experienced lots of different places, you know, um, the, the place I teach right now, um, we're associated with University of Nebraska, Omaha, and they've got a 141 program. Um, and a lot of our instructors are really sharp and they're, you know, they're, they're super motivated. And, um, but this goes for a lot of, a lot of the different places is that, you know, you kind of grow up, you kind of do what you know, like when you grew up. So, you know, in flight training right now, it's a lot of like, well, this is how we've always done it because this is how my instructor taught me to do it. But he's six months ahead of me at UNO. So there's just kind of, you know, well, that's how we do it. Well, then you ask him, well, why? Well, that's how I was taught. Okay, but why? Well, that's how my, my instructor taught me. Okay, who taught your instructor? Well, another guy from, you know, X universe, who taught him? So, um, and maybe this isn't a, you know, a strictly speaking military thing. This could be a corporate pilot, an airline pilot. Um, but I think there's value in having people that um, are outside, you know, just the flight training environment to be able to kind of come in and go, hey, think about doing it this way. Because when I was in the Air Force, when I was at, you know, X airline, you know, we did it this way and it worked. So did that answer the question? Yes. And it's just another example of passing along that generational torch and it can come from a different family. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just, so again, we're talking about like family lineage, like we always did it this way. I don't want to say it has a sense of inbreeding about it, but it kind of does a little bit. So how about you bring in some fresh DNA from another perspective? Mm -hmm. How do you like that analogy? See, there you go. This is what makes us such great writers, right? Pass I'm, I'm just the crazy cousins, what I am. <laughs> Bring the crazy cousin in. He's going to mix mix it up. Right. Um, well, an, another thing, Patrick, is your... So another article that you wrote was about using uh, simulators in flight training. And that was called Simulator Convert. And that was in the November, December 2022 issue. And in this article, you talk about the value of using simulators, you talked mainly about for instrument training, but also in primary training. So with that part of it, so you, you are a younger pilot and you are a younger CFI. I know you think you're, you're an old man now, but you know, and you do have a three in the front of your age, I believe. So, yeah. <laughs> so, At least another few years. So Tell me a little bit about, now, obviously you have, you know, we all have our unique perspective on things and you come at it from a military perspective. You also come at it from a, a younger person's perspective and 
from a technology standpoint, you know, you're a digital native, right? You grew up with all of this stuff as opposed to pilots who are maybe in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So tell me a little bit about how does that inform, do you feel that like that informs your, your instruction, your openness to using technology, your familiarity or comfort with technology? This is a big question. And then also when you teach students of differing ages, how, how does that interface? So I think part of it's just the, the trend that aviation is going down, you know, um, everything is going digital, you know, like we're, we're not training, at least I'm not, um, I'm sure there's some people out there that may be, but I think by and large, um, everybody's training with, you know, for flight or yeah, some kind of an EFB. Um, so I think it's, I'm comfortable with it, but I think it's, it's kind of up to me to like, keep everybody up with the trend, you know, it's like, if someone wants to do it the old school way and, you know, paper approach plates and paper and route charts, like, that's fine. It works, you know, but I think it can help people to go, Hey, here's an easier, more efficient way to do this. Um, yeah, I think as far as the simulator, um, there are so many things I can do to a student, in a simulator to help them be better. Um, not just to check off a training box. Right. Um, like I'm not just, you know, for instrument training, I'm not just going to go make them do an ILS and simulator just because it's a simulator and it's cool. You know, I can do things like, hey, let me fail their static system and see if they catch that. Or um, one of my guys uh, who just passed his commercial check, but he's the one in the picture with me in that article uh, when he was doing his instrument rating. Um, you know, I, I was being a little old school and I made him do an NDB approach, um, but I failed his, uh, I failed his attitude driver. And... Um, he was in the middle of his procedure turn in the simulator on an NDB approach in the weather. And I failed his attitude gyro and he knew something wasn't up. And he looks at me and goes, what did you do? And I just kind of went. And I don't think he got out of that before the simulator went, you know, big red screen. Um, but, you know, we, we talk about in, you know, flight training or in CFI training about, you know, law of intensity and law of primacy and all those learning laws. It's like that was a much more intense experience by him seeing something but not realizing it rather than just me taking two, you know, plastic covers and covering your stuff and go, here's your partial panel. Um, but that led to a much more effective training session, I think. Um, so um, I think as far as, you know, your point on the, the age thing, um, it's a great time to get into aviation. There's a lot of people coming to aviation, um, a lot of young people coming to aviation. And even more than me, they're going to be, you know, iPhone digital natives. So, you know, they may not want to do things with paper chart. And I think that's fine, you know. Um, so it's kind of up to me to evolve to meet their, um, their wants, their needs, um, and to fit them how they learn best. You know, if, um, you know, you pull out a, a paper sectional and they're like, yeah, it's paper. Like, okay, we can use an iPad. That's fine. So, Well, it's funny. So I trained to get my pilot's license in 2010. Mm -hmm. And my instructor didn't even let me use the GPS, the very rudimentary GPS on the aircraft until mm -hmm. it was like almost ready for my check ride. He wanted me to do everything with the the e6b flight calculator and charting with 
with pencil and paper and the you know all that kind of stuff so now uh whatever 13 years later see math major (laughs) (laughs) you know everything's you know just stick your ipad on on your kneeboard and and go off so that's it's just different now and that's okay so is there not that trend where it's like you need to be able to do it on paper and pencil like is that our flight instruction getting away from that you know i guess the the way i do it is i kind of do a hybrid method um i still will teach um the first cross country with a paper sectional and a paper nav log and an e6b and a plotter um but the reason i'm really doing it is not so much because um i think that's what they have to use because once they get their license they can use it they want um, I think it's a lot easier to show the fundamentals. You know, it's like, hey, here's why the wind correction is the way it is, or you know, here's why the ground speed's the way it is. And it's not just, you know, they if they put a number into the iPad and it gives them something goofy, they they've got the context to go, that doesn't look right. Let me dig more into this rather than just, you know, if they've never seen, you know, using a whiz wheel or using a plotter. Um, yeah, I, I personally feel like there's a bit of a trap there. They'll just trust whatever the iPad tells them. If you at least teach them a little bit old school, they can go, hmm, I don't like that. Let me dig. Or why is this like this? Oh, there's a really heavy cross-winded altitude, something like that, you know? Um, so, I don't know. I I think about, I honestly think of myself as a little bit old school um, for doing it that way. Um, but I think there's value in, in both. What, what is the norm? Do most flight instructors do that? Again, I know, you know, you don't know every flight instructor instructing, but is there a general consensus amongst flight instructors as we should still teach it this way just to kind of give people a baseline? Or do you, do you see people going all old school or all 100% digital? I think it's a generational thing. You know, I really, um, I think it's how you were brought up, what your instructor taught you, and maybe, you know, your age, the instructor and your student's age. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there are lots of instructors out there that are probably a lot like yours were that were completely old school. And, you know, you can have an iPad when you're done if you're, if you're check right. And and I think that's fine. You know, that's, that's one of the great things about aviation. That's like I kind of said in the opening. Um, there's no one right way. You know, there's, there's multiple ways to get the same outcome. And if you want to be an iPad native and do it that way, that's fine. You want to do paper sectional and, you know, complete hand plotting, knock yourself out and it works. I read, I heard something a while ago, um, and I'm going to tell this story because I'm sure my partner's brother will not be listening to this podcast, but he's uh, of millennial age and dude cannot read a map. Like he, he, like his whole life, he just had this to get him places, GPS, like the skill, the, and I've, so there, I read some research that like the people of a certain generation, like literally don't know how to read maps. And I would think that if you were training to be a pilot and you had only known about GPS to get around, um, that could be a liability. Yeah, I would think so. Um, but again, I, I think it's how you teach it, you know, um, you can use the iPad. We're still going to look out the window. Um, we're still going to look at the stopwatch and go, well, I see, you know, whether I'm reading off a paper sectional or my iPad, you know, I should still see like, you know, this town or this highway or this lake at this time. And that still works, you know? So. 
And, you know, I will say thinking about it when you're in the air, you have a very different perspective than when you're on the ground in a car on a surface street. So that mm-hmm. is, that is right. Cause you have more of a, you know, perspective of, cause you're like looking down at the whole earth, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you said, mountains over there, ocean over here. Okay. I'm going North and going South. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. So Patrick, tell us there's some really, ex- I mean, this is a really exciting time for you. I mean, you, you've, you're entirely shifting gears, 15 years in the military, and now there's this whole new world of civilian aviation that you are going for. And I understand there is some King Air training for you. So tell, tell us a little bit about like what, what's next for Patrick. So um, everybody maybe asking the question, what's in the Air Force? Why does he have a beard? Um in the, I'm in this DOD program where if you're going to get off active duty, um, you can intern with a company for four to six months. So I applied and got accepted. Um, and that's what I'm doing the King Air training with. So I'll be flying with Silverhawk Aviation in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's a Part 135 operator. Um, I finished ATP, CTP last week, and I'm going to King Air Simulator training with flight safety next week. Um, and if I don't Spooge that up. I'll be flying King Air 90s here um, by the end of September. Yeah. Well, after the B-52, how hard could it be, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll see. So. Well, so in the September-October issue of Mentor, there is an article by a NAFI member named Joe Stoller actually the, a reprint of an article of when he was getting his, his multi-engine rating. And uh, Joel just retired from the air, the airlines and the re- retirement age for the airlines is 65, but you can still fly commercially for, for other, you know, not the major airlines. So he went and learned how to fly a King Air and mm-hmm. what they told him when he started. Now, this guy has 25,000 hours and lots of different aircraft. They told him this is one of the hardest type ratings you'll ever get. And he did it. And he said, they were right. Yeah. <laughs> so my, what uh, is it about the King Air that's so, such a challenge? I don't know. My, oh, uh, my you'll find out, chief, I suppose. But... I'll, I'll find out. Yeah. My assistant chief told me the same thing the other day. Um, yeah. You know, I imagine for one thing, um, there's a lot going on. Um, yeah. I think, I think the simulator, the avionics are, uh, are stock. So there's, there's an aspect of dealing with, you know, stock avionics, not some of the, the newer, fancier stuff. Um, and I think the multitasking is what is what will get people coming home. So. Now, is it different than a, just a, a different multi-engine aircraft? It's more to it, probably. Um, more powerful, bigger engines. Um, single pilot, the way I'll be doing it. So, Well, so. Joel, Joel actually did write and submitted an article about what the training was like. Maybe I should forward it to you. We're gonna yeah, I'll need to read that one. Maybe I can study up. <laughs> We're going to publish that in an upcoming issue of Mentor Magazine. And maybe you'll have to write about your experience. Yeah. See how it measures up. So, Patrick, thank you for sharing all of your background with us. You really have, it is a unique, you know, like I said, everybody has their own personal unique story, but yours is pretty, pretty cool. Share with us why you decided to start writing for Mentor Magazine. And also when um, we keep somebody in NAFI, people were like, oh, we should do a meet a member 
column and you were the first person I thought of and then I pinged you and you immediately were just like, yes, I'll do that, which thank you. I appreciate that very much. So tell us about your eagerness to share the three articles that you wrote and then also to want to take on this column. What, what was your impulse for wanting to do that? I guess I want to get my money's worth out of this uh, English degree on my wall over here. Um, no, it's, you know, I, I genuinely love, um, you know, I, I don't say, it, you know, instructing any, teaching people how to fly. It's, you know, why I wrote that article. Um, and it was another way to give back uh, to the community because aviation has, has given me so much, and, you know, meant so much that, um, and then being a flight instructor has been so rewarding that it was one more to give back. Um, so that, that was kind of the impetus. And, you know, once I wrote the first one, it was almost like, okay, I'm hooked. You know, I, I kind of, in, in a way, kind of got jazzed about seeing myself get published, you know. So it's like, all right, I want to see that again, you know. Um, and then the, you know, the, the column, um, it just seemed interesting, you know. Um, it was something new and something different. And, you know, again, another way to kind of give back to the organization. And, you know, when you called and said, hey, do you want to write this column? And it wasn't even a, even a you know, half a heartbeat. Yeah. So, so what would you tell some of our listeners right now who, you know, they've been NAFI members, they've been flight instructors, everybody has their stories and then they're like, oh yeah, there's that time blank, but what would you tell them? But okay. So, but they haven't done it. They haven't reached out. They haven't said here, Beth, here's an article, or would you like me? I want to write. What would you tell people who have an inkling that they might want to do this, but they're pausing on it. Don't be afraid. Do it. Um, everyone's got a story. Everyone, every, I feel like some people think that, well, that's not really worth it. You know, eh, you know what, what do I really know? It's like, no, everybody's got something. Everybody's got a story. Everybody can contribute. Um, and there's value in any of it. So if anybody's holding back, stop, go do it. And I always tell people that you know, people might have the idea that they're not a writer, but I just say writing is just a version of storytelling and we're all mm-hmm. storytellers. It's like hanger flying only in written form, these articles that we talk about. And there is a grand tradition in aviation of, of the next generation learning from the stories of the generation before them. So that's what I think is so valuable about Uh, mentor magazine and the authors that contribute to mentor magazine so thank you so much patrick and uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with us and we are really excited to see what's coming next on the pike for you thanks well thank you for joining us for the writers behind the series on naffy's more right rudder podcast join us next time in two months and be sure to like and subscribe and we'll see you next time on the more right rudder podcast